0: hello uh welcome to the lgbt law notes podcast uh i am your former host back in uh temporarily to cover shane's parental leave and very happy to do so my name is matt skinner um i've been very happy to see how this podcast has expanded in some ways uh in the five years since i uh gave it uh, gave it off to uh, my successor and now another successor um, but I know we still also cover the latest monthly uh, issue of Lano's, and that's what we're here to do today with the February 2023 issue. And uh, as I said, I'm delighted to be back with my old uh, partner in crime, Art Leonard, uh, Professor Emeritus at New York Law School. And uh, the first uh, case we have decided to talk about this month is uh, the issue of conversion therapy uh, in Washington State and and what has happened on an en banc uh, request at the Ninth Circuit. Uh, So can you help us with that Art?
1: Yeah, uh, this is the case of Tingley against Ferguson and Tingley is Brian Tingley, a licensed Washington therapist who uh, is uh, challenging the law represented by uh, our old friends at Alliance Defending Freedom. They've got an agenda here. Their agenda is to try to take every area where we have made progress and to get it before the conservative Supreme Court to see if they can get it reversed. So conversion therapy, uh, or as it is more formally referred to sometimes, sexual orientation change efforts or SOCE, S-O-C-E. And we've had pretty good luck in getting uh, quite a few states and some municipal governments as well to pass laws that are attempting to combat this pernicious practice, which uh, there's general agreement in the uh, psychiatric community and psychology community that uh, this, is, this is fraudulent. This is, uh, uh, you can't change someone's sexual orientation through talk therapy. Uh, hasn't been done, hasn't been proved. There's no uh, uh, scientifically reputable studies to show that it works. And even if it did, there are quite a few studies that show that it has horrendous side effects on the people who are subjected to it. And although uh, there's, there's a lot of talk about how, oh, it's voluntary, they don't have to do it if they don't want to. This is uh, frequently a case of parents forcing kids into this therapy uh, when they find out that they're LGBTQ. Uh, so uh, the state of Washington was is was one of many states that have passed laws now, uh, which basically say that it is a uh, violation of uh, the state's regulation of medical practice for a licensed healthcare provider to try to perform sexual orientation change efforts on minors. Uh, and ADf brought this case uh, challenging the law, filed in the U.S. District Court claiming that under the First Amendment, uh, Mr. Tingley, who administers this therapy through through speech and who is doing it because of his religious beliefs, uh, should have a right to do it and that the law violates his rights under the First Amendment, uh, whether we're talking about freedom of speech or we're talking about free exercise of religion, although they focus this case on speech. Uh, And uh, it seems that the Ninth Circuit was one of the earliest circuits to get out there and to say that there is no First Amendment exemption from complying with this law Uh, in a case called Pickup against Brown. And that name Pickup should be familiar because Mr. Pickup after he lost out in California decided to move to Florida. And he's one of the litigants that's that's challenging the local uh, anti-conversion therapy laws passed by various municipalities and counties in Florida state hasn't passed one, obviously. The Republican legislature would never stoop to that level. Uh, and the, the governor would veto it in a minute, in a New York minute. But it would be, <laughs> it would be a, uh, a Miami minute or whatever. So uh, uh, the Ninth Circuit had this case pick up against Brown dates back all the way to 2014. They were one of the first ones to rule that uh, a conversion therapy ban does not violate the First Amendment rights of either the practitioners or of the parents of the minors who want to get this uh, therapy for their kids. Uh, I, and I want to put therapy in quotes here uh, because it's certainly not therapeutic. Uh, so this case went before a federal district judge in the state of Washington, Robert J. Bryan. And he said, well, I'm compelled by Ninth Circuit precedent. I have to reject this claim that it violates Mr. Tingley's First Amendment rights. Uh, ADF, of course, appealed. And uh, they they drew a, uh, an interesting three-judge bench. Uh, circuit judges Ronald Gould and Kim Lane Wardlaw, uh, who were both appointed by Bill Clinton and have been on the circuit for a long time, and Mark J. Bennett, who was appointed by Donald Trump. But unanimous affirmance of Brian, uh, for the simple reason that there's controlling Ninth Circuit precedent and a three-judge panel has to follow Ninth Circuit Precedent. Right. The argument ADF was making, you know, why do they even think they had a chance here? They said that the pickup case has been repudiated by the US Supreme Court. And their basis for saying that is a Supreme Court decision from 2018 called NIFLA NIFLA, which of course is an acronym, versus Becerra, who was the Secretary of State. Of, uh, of California at the time, and uh, now as a senator, I believe, from California. And this was a free speech case challenging a California law that required clinics providing reproductive health services to advise their patrons about the availability of abortion providers. And these clinics that it was specifically targeted to, although it applied to all clinics providing such care, were those clinics that were established specifically for the purpose of persuading women not to have abortions. That is, they didn't wanna give, give the state's message to these women that abortion uh, providers are available uh, and that you could even get free treatment in California for this. Uh, so they took it to the Supreme Court. Justice Thomas wrote the opinion for the court. Uh, and he agreed with the challengers to the law Uh, with NIFLA that this violated the First Amendment rights of the clinic operators because the state was compelling them to to, uh, speak the state's message and they were not a state agency or something like that. They were a private clinic. So that violates the First Amendment. Now, in the course of his opinion, uh, Thomas had to address the question whether professional speech has a different level of First Amendment protection from political speech or just ordinary speech or artistic expression or whatever. And he said, well, there are some misguided courts who have said that professional speech, speech that one utters in the course of practicing one's profession has less First Amendment protection than uh, other forms of speech. He says, there is no such thing as professional, a special professional speech doctrine. And he cited the pickup case And he decided a case from uh, New Jersey, King versus governor of New Jersey, which uh, rejected a First Amendment challenge to uh, New Jersey's conversion therapy ban. And he said these cases, they said that there's professional speech and the professional speech doesn't get the same high level of protection uh, because of the state's pervasive regulation of the professions. Uh, And he said, well, that's that's not that's not the First Amendment rule and uh, he spoke disparagingly about those cases. So now ADF wants to rely on that to say pickup is no longer good law because the Supreme Court by name has referred to it in an adverse way. And the panel said, no, this is totally distinguishable. This is totally distinguishable. And in a sense, uh, what uh, Justice Thomas was saying was sort of dicta when it comes to the issue of conversion therapy, because in the NIFLA case, The state was compelling a private actor to say something they didn't want to say. But in this case, what the state is saying to somebody is, you cannot perform this procedure, which you are calling therapy. You can't perform this procedure, which incidentally affects your right to speak in the context of performing the procedure. We are regulating conduct here. We are not regulating speech it could be that the conduct incorporates speech and some uh, conversion therapy practitioners limit themselves to speech. Some, as we've seen in in other litigation, especially some New Jersey litigation, uh, not the King case, but a case that was challenging conversion therapy in the state court as a consumer protection issue, uh, that they do all kinds of weird stuff as part of conversion therapy, some of these practitioners. Perhaps some of them just use speech. But uh, to say just use speech isn't a form of conduct. I mean, it is a form of conduct. Uh, So, you know, there are are two ways of categorizing this. Uh, One can say that, yes, speech is involved and maybe there should be some heightened scrutiny. uh, But the effect on speech is only incidental. So it shouldn't be strict scrutiny with the compelling state interest test, et cetera, that you find in uh, regulation of political speech. And uh, some other forms forms of commercial speech.
0: Can you remind our listeners what circuit has caused the circuit split? The
1: 11th Circuit has. This is the problem. We have a circuit split. And and the 11th Circuit specifically disagreed with the pickup case and cited the NIFLA case.
0: Okay.
1: So, I mean, ADF had something to go on here. But the three-judge panel said, well, we don't think... That Thomas's dicta in Nifla constitutes reversing pickup, and we find that uh, this in this case is distinguishable from Nifla. It's a different sort of thing, and so we're going to reaffirm. Although the uh, the Trump appointee wrote a separate opinion saying, "Well, you know, we're bound by circuit precedent," uh, but uh, ADF, of course, applies for on bank review. And they were denied on-bank review. Now it is specifically, it's interesting how difficult it is to get on-bank review in the Ninth Circuit because there are 29 active judges in the Ninth Circuit. And in order to get on-bank review, you have to get a majority of the active judges on the circuit voting to grant uh, review on-bank, rehearing on-bank, which has the automatic effect if they grant it, of vacating the panel decision. Uh, So uh, they didn't get the votes. The Ninth Circuit announced on uh, January 23rd that uh, they didn't get enough votes, but it generated two dissenting opinions. And the interesting thing is one of the dissenting opinions is by uh, a senior judge who is no longer a member of the active bench and therefore didn't get to vote on this. But nonetheless, felt so strongly about it that he wrote an opinion that was joined by several others. Uh, this is, and I'm never quite sure how to pronounce his first name, uh, Senior Circuit Judge Dermid o- O'Scanlan or Dermot O'Scanlan
0: He's Irish, right?
1: He's Irish, so it's probably Dermot uh, uh, who is a very, very far to the right conservative. Uh, so uh, he was joined by uh, Judge Sandra Ikuta, who was a George W. Bush appointee, uh, and uh, Circuit Judges, Ryan Nelson and Lawrence Van Dyke, who were Trump appointees, and circuit judge Patrick Blumette, a Trump appointee who is an out-gay man, but an ultra-conservative, wrote a separate dissenting opinion, which raised what I thought was an extraordinarily spurious uh, uh, claim. But at any rate, uh, what uh, O'Scanlan says is, look, the Supreme Court has stated its, dis- it's uh, disapproval of pickup, or at least Thomas wrote it in an opinion signed by a majority of the, of the justices. So, you know, it's the Supreme Court talking, even if it's dicta. So he says, I think pickup is no longer good law. The 11th Circuit has rejected it. Uh, and uh, the 11th Circuit denied on-bank review to the opinion that rejected it. Uh, so we have a circuit split here. We should resolve the circuit split. By granting rehearing on bank and deciding whether we agree with the 11th circuit or whether we think the Supreme Court has, in essence, overruled pickup by uh, speaking disparagingly about it. Uh, so he's got uh, he and his Confederates here, uh, you know, four of them. And then separately descending, Judge bumate says, well, Mr. Tingley. After all, he's represented by Alliance Defending Freedom. Mr. Tingley is raising uh, his religious beliefs as his motivation, that he feels that he has a mission, a religious mission, to convert back to normal sexual orientation, etc. cetera, any of these kids who are afflicted with this uh, situation. Of course, Boumante is not going to use that language because he's now a gay man. But he says, look, there's a First Amendment thing here. And so uh, it's not just free speech, it's also free exercise of religion. And you've got two constitutional rights here. And at least you should have heightened scrutiny. And what this panel did is they just applied pickup, and pickup said that this is professional speech, and professional speech doesn't get heightened scrutiny because of the state's tradition of regulating uh, professional speech in the healthcare context. Uh, so he thought that they should have granted uh, rehearing as well. But the important point is this may be the case that gets it up to the Supreme Court. Uh, Because as as far as I know, the municipalities in Florida, whose law was struck down in the Otto case, uh, have not filed cert petitions. Uh, But ADF has a mission. You know, they have a mission to get this before the Supreme Court because they would like to see that nifla dicta become a holding.
0: Art, can you bring me up to speed? Has anything happened uh, at the Supreme Court in the last five years that might? Uh...
1: <laughs> yeah, the membership has changed. <laughs> the membership has changed. Well, well, part of the thing is, and I think this is what Boumette is really doing. He's trying to provide ADF with the uh, with the uh, ammunition to go up there to the Supreme Court and attract the First Amendment free exercise uh uh champions on the court like alito and thomas and gorsuch and kavanaugh and barrett i mean these people have almost never seen a free exercise claim that they weren't willing to grant and we've seen a lot of very unusual decisions coming out over the last few years from the supreme court on free exercise and uh, we of course have lost a free exercise case there in the fulton case against city of philadelphia Yep. Uh, the catholic foster, foster care agency so they want to get it up there and the chances are if they get it up there uh you know the conversion therapy law may go down and, and statutes that we've uh, achieved in several states may go down
0: yes i mean i do remember at, at least two other circuit decisions we talked about years ago uh that... oh, the third
1: circuit in king in yep. new jersey and the pickup case and yep. there, were, there was another case as well in california
0: so um yeah, uh, and there were district court cases as well. Settled law is uh, is a complicated thing. I we don't
1: that. have settled law anymore in the <laughs> Supreme Court because uh, precedent is not as important as whether they think the case was correctly decided. Yeah, uh, which um, is uh, which is a distinct change.
0: Yeah, um, very interesting. All right, we will take a quick break, and we will come back and discuss uh, the uh, case out of West Virginia. All right, we are back uh, d- discussing a case out of West Virginia involving um, an issue that um, has become uh, an issue that has sort of uh, dominated many state legislatures' attention in the last couple years, this issue of uh, banning uh, transgender youth from um, playing in sports uh, in the gender identity in um, their their authentic gender identity. Um, and uh, we now have a decision out of a West Virginia uh, federal district court. Can you tell us about it, Art?
1: Yeah, this is uh, an interesting case. Uh, The West Virginia House of Delegates in 2021 passed a law that they called the Save Women's Sports Bill. And the reason they have to save women's sports is there are hordes, hordes of transgender girls and young women who want to dominate various sports. I mean, well, this is the rhetoric you hear in these state legislatures. They say that, that the poor cisgender women are being uh, phased out, are being displaced by transgender women, who are really, of course, men. And especially if we're talking about uh, high school sports, because most of these, these women are not old enough. These girls are not old enough to uh, get uh, comf- confirmation surgery, uh, to have genital alteration, et cetera, et cetera. They're, they're like boys dressing as girls. That's how these Republican state legislators talk about them, basically. They say they are biological males. What is a biological male? Well, I you know, we're all biological creatures. We are all physical creatures, and uh, that includes transgender people. So... There, there is a good argument that transgender girls are biological girls, uh, especially if they've been uh, taking puberty blockers, so they haven't gone through uh, female puberty, and then they're taking testosterone, or rather not testosterone, they're taking estrogen, or you know they're taking uh, feminizing hormones. Uh, so they're living as girls, uh, although this this case involves a relatively young girl uh, who identify uh, a young a transgender girl who identified early and uh, was entering middle school, not even high school, and uh, on puberty blockers and uh, wanted to try out for the girls' sports teams, was really eager. And her mother asked the school if she could join a girls' team. And the school said, well, there's this bill in the legislature, and if it passes, the answer will probably be no. And then it passed. And so they said no and uh, she went to court. She filed suit against the West Virginia Board of Education, the Harrison County Board of Education where her school is located, the Associated School Superintendents, the West Virginia Secondary School Activities Commission, the state of West Virginia intervened as a defendant, and a cisgender female college athlete joined the lawsuit uh, through a motion to intervene. And she, Said, uh, look, I know litigation, or her attorney said, we know litigation takes time. And meanwhile, she's starting middle school. She wants to be able to be on these teams. Can we please have a preliminary injunction so that she can compete? It's not like there are you know, these, these hordes of transgender women knocking at the door. In any given state, there may be a handful, if, if that, of transgender uh, girls who are interested in competing in uh, women's uh, sports. So uh, Judge Goodwin, who was uh, the judge on the case, uh, and uh, Judge Joseph R. Goodwin, U.S. District Court for the Southern District of West Virginia, he took a quick look at it and he said, yeah, I'll give you a preliminary injunction. I think you have a good good, uh, chance of success here. And the reason for that, presumably, was that maybe his clerks did a little research. And they found that there are like a handful of cases out there, and they've generally ruled in favor of transgender women who want to be treated by the school as the gender with which they identify. We've got a good, a good track, especially in the bathroom cases, we get got a very good track record. The sports cases, it's still too new to say that we have an extensive track record. But we do have cases saying that attempts to exclude transgender women uh, may violate equal protection, may violate Title IX. She's got a good argument and he decided this is just one girl it's not like she's going to take over women's sports at her middle school or something by by participating so he gave him the preliminary injunction and then the case proceeds to discovery and motions course motions for summary judgment and now the judge has a record to look at and he says he basically he, he didn't use these words but he basically said i changed my mind i don't think she has a good case uh And what he was persuaded by was the idea that when Congress passed Title IX, they certainly didn't intend to uh, change the landscape with respect to women's sports. Uh, In fact, one of the great motivations of Title IX, and if you can cast your mind back to the 1970s, (laughs) you know, uh, Title IX was about dealing with the problem that women... Uh, who wanted to do sports were prevented from doing so because schools spent lots of money on men's sports, but very little on women's sports. There were very few uh, ways they could compete. Many schools had no uh, intram- uh, intramural sports for women. Uh, they weren't The sports leagues hadn't really developed. Uh, and so part of the idea behind Title IX was to give some impetus to the public schools in this country at all levels uh, from college down to, uh, to elementary schools uh, to give women an opportunity if they're interested to participate in sports and to end bias against women and discrimination against women in terms of the allocation of resources. That was the big issue. The school district was going to have to spend real money on women's sports. Uh, and that was talked about quite a bit. And so he says, well, it seems clear that at the time when they passed Title IX, they were not thinking about this transgender issue at all, of course. It wasn't on the radar. And he says, uh, I am persuaded by the argument that when they used the word sex in Title IX, they meant biological sex. And biological sex is genital sex. It's the sex that you are identified as at the time you were born. And so I agree that this plaintiff is not a girl for purposes of Title IX. Uh, and... Uh, same thing on the equal protection. Uh, he says that uh, she's not similarly situated to the cisgender girls. Uh, until uh, she began the transition, she was growing up as a boy. Uh, and, she, and the judge says there are well-established differences between biological boys and biological girls. And uh, he looked at the hormonal the testimony about hormones and things. And, he said, well, I understand that there may be some uh, biological girls who are, uh, you know, uh, perform way above the norm for girls. And that there are perhaps biological boys who perform well below the norm for boys. Uh, but we're just talking about the average person here. Uh, and uh, uh, we can't, uh, I mean, she may be an exceptional uh athlete, but she's not going to be uh, allowed to uh, to compete in women's sports. Uh, and uh, the ACLU and Lambda Legal uh, are involved in this case. It's going to be appealed, I'm sure. Uh, and uh, this is going to go yeah. West we, Virginia we, we to the Fourth Circuit. Just,
0: yeah, just one uh, sort of Second Circuit update, because they um, the Second Circuit, sort of, they didn't really get to the merits. Uh, in a recent case, uh, by the name of Sewell, um, this issue of what, uh, title IX means for youth, um, sports participation, but they did announce this week, uh, that they are going on bonk, uh, to re, to rehear that particular case.
1: Yeah, that's an um, interesting development. Now we discussed the Sewell case yeah. last month's podcast because it was decided late last year. And, uh, I think that uh, you know it's it's really interesting because the Second Circuit rarely goes on bank, yeah. and the Second Circuit has a very narrow majority of Democratic appointees. Yeah. Uh, and uh, normally, uh, I mean, you wouldn't go on bank unless there is significant unhappiness on the part of the judges of the circuit who were not on the panel. Yeah, the panel's decision now. Uh, Denny Chin wrote that decision. He's a senior judge, so he didn't get to vote on the on-bank question, Uh, and it was a a liberal panel, a three-judge panel that decided that. It could be, I think it's possible that a majority of uh, the judges or a significant number of the judges who are Democratic appointees may feel that the panel decision should have addressed the merits more directly. Uh, yeah. That's a possibility. Uh, they went off on standing issues, and right. uh, some of the some of their rationalizations of the standing issues were a bit questionable. Uh, maybe uh, they were avoiding taking a position. Although right. I thought Judge Chin's decision uh, seemed to suggest that uh, you know under Title Nine precedents uh, the. Uh, Plaintiffs had a bad case there. The plaintiffs there weren't transgender. The plaintiffs were cisgender girls who complained that their rights are violated by having to compete with transgender women.
0: There was an interesting, I don't know if you saw it, another interesting case in the second circuit uh, about church autonomy last week. And they also had a vote on going on bonk in that case. And it was tied so that- So it it doesn't doesn't go on bonk. But they published, you know, various dissents and and uh, statements on the on banc situation and it sort of lets you figure out how the who voted for which way yeah. um but that was six to six so basically if one one of those people th- felt differently in this Sewell case uh you could get a majority um and i believe there was one judge that that recused uh from that church autonomy case but um It'll be interesting to see. I mean, it's certainly never, we've certainly never had an en banc circuit court look at the question of what Title IX means for for uh, transgender participation in sports.
1: And that's a question that I think is gonna to get to the Supreme Court eventually. Yeah, We'll have enough disagreement among the circuits for that. Yeah. Uh, and the question is how frequently, how many terms do they wanna have a big LGBTQ case on their docket? Yeah. We're, we're waiting for an opinion now. And, uh, uh 303 creatives right and, uh, we'll see what happens with that one
0: <clears throat> all right very interesting we'll keep uh, our listeners apprised and uh when we come back uh we will um return to the saga of jack Phillips All right, we're back to discuss uh, the ongoing saga of Jack Phillips, the uh, famous litigant in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case that went to the Supreme Court uh, back in 2018. Um, But litigation continues over um, uh, Jack Phillips and his bakery. Can you update us, Art?
1: Yeah, okay. So Masterpiece Cake Shop, on the day that the Supreme Court announced that it was granting a petition for cert in the, in the original Masterpiece Cake Shop case, uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop got a phone call that day. Now, they were very busy because it was big news and there was a lot of press calls and stuff. I bet Jack Phillips was being interviewed for TV and radio, et cetera, and podcasts and everything. Everyone was distracted. So, this phone call comes in. And this phone call comes in uh, from, uh, let's see if I, I've got her, uh, her first name here. Uh, Miss Scardina, Autumn Scardina, who is a transgender woman. And uh, I don't know if this phone call, it was coincidence that she was calling on the day the Supreme Court announced that, or if she she heard that on the news and said, I've got to call those people and order myself a cake and see what happens. So uh, she's a transgender woman. She calls up and uh, she ends up with Jack Phillips' daughter, Deborah, answering the phone. I mean, Jack was otherwise engaged, obviously, with the, with the press. So she gets Deborah and she says, uh, I'd like to order a cake and I want it to have a pink interior and blue icing. Can you do that for me? And Deborah says, oh, sure. You know, we do those colors. No, it's no big deal. And, and she says, uh, well, I'm planning to use it to celebrate my birthday and to celebrate my transition from male to female. And Deborah said, "Oops, <laughs> got to check with dad." And she uh, they they got disconnected. They get, they get reconnected, and Deborah says, "Oh, we can't do that cake. Uh, we we don't believe in gender transition. We have religious objections to doing that cake." And uh, so you know where this goes. Uh, Autumn Scardina goes to the Colorado uh, Human Rights Commission, a civil rights commission, and files her complaint. And the Civil Rights Commission finds probable cause and sets it down for a hearing. And so Jack Phillips is going to take this sitting down. So he goes into federal court and he gets, tries to get that proceeding enjoined. And uh, the Civil Rights Commission sits down at the table because they're ordered by the uh, federal district judge to try to mediate, to try to resolve this. And uh, they can't reach an agreement at first. uh, And then they finally reach an agreement uh, with Jack Phillips that the charge against him and Masterpiece will be dismissed. Uh, In addition and uh, consideration of that, he's going to withdraw his lawsuit. So he scared them with the lawsuit. But uh, Autumn Scardino was not going to take this sitting down after all. They didn't ask her permission to settle the case. Is she bound by their settlement of the case? Well, not really, because under the, uh, the uh, Colorado civil rights law, she can go into court herself. And she can file her own lawsuit. And so she filed suit against Masterpiece Cake Shop. And uh, she's in the Colorado courts. And she has won a a great victory on January 26th. The Colorado Court of Appeals affirmed the trial court in holding that uh, they had violated, Mespe's Cake Shop had violated her rights and did not have a First Amendment right to refuse to make a birthday cake for her that had blue icing and a pink inside and no inscription. She didn't ask for any inscription on it. She didn't ask for them to put into words some kind of expression of approval for gender transition. And that proved important to the court. Uh, They said, and, you know, this is uh, referring to the 303 creative. That case is about speech because uh, the courts, including the Tenth Circuit, uh, said that there is a First Amendment uh, free speech claim in that case. Uh, cause designing a website, a, mari- a wedding website it involves it's an expressive activity, involves text, et cetera. And so it's free speech, uh, disagreeing with how some other courts have analyzed that sort of thing. Uh, but in this case, in this case, there is no speech. And furthermore, Jack Phillips, when cross-examined in, I think at a deposition, uh, he conceded, that no one looking at that cake would see any message at all. It's just uh, assuming it was intact, it would just be a blue cake. Now, blue cakes are unusual. I don't think blue is a common, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, color to produce a, a birthday cake. But nonetheless, they said it doesn't communicate any specific image. And unless someone knows what it's being used for, they have no reason to think that the baker Is trying to communicate to them his approval of gender transition. So the court said, we don't see the First Amendment issue here, the free speech issue here. And he said, well, what about religion? What about my free exercise of religion? Well, they said, uh, we think that uh, you're being asked to make a cake that doesn't say anything. How is your religion implicated in this? Besides, our statute, the Colorado Civil Rights statute is a neutral law of general application so there's no heightened scrutiny here. And the state certainly has a legitimate interest. In fact, we think more than just a legitimate interest in banning discrimination by places of public accommodation. But of course, you know where this is going. I think we're going to get a certain petition out of this. Well, let, let's see what happens in 303 Creative. But, uh, we I might... will
0: say I, I attended 303 Creative's uh, the argument in person and Jack Phillips was there. Perhaps yeah. uh, waiting, uh, Wait, <laughs> waiting to get, to get point, back there. Waiting to get back to sitting up front uh, in the where the litigants in the case is. Um, but uh, just throwing that out there. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's interesting. But you know, this is this is the second time the Colorado Court of Appeals has dumped on Jack Phillips, and this time he can't claim that uh, the commission was biased against him. Because this lawsuit doesn't involve the commission. This is Autumn Scardinia suing him directly. And it went through the courts. And and I think the Court of Appeals even said in the opinion, uh, we don't see any expression of bias or hostility to Mr. Phillips' religious beliefs in the court system here. And none was even detected in Masterpiece case. It was all about commissioners who talked too much about their personal views during the hearings. So that's
0: right. That's right. Um, so
1: interesting here.
0: Yeah. So uh, the saga of Jackville continues. Yes. <laughs> um, all right. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll come back for one more segment with a surprise that Art has in store for me to discuss. All right. We are back for the final of notes segment. Art, what would you like to discuss?
1: Well, this is this is a peculiar case because this is, I think, this is the first time uh, when I've written about a case, and uh, I wrote about this case for Gay City News, and I assigned one of my contributing writers, Matt Goodwin, to write about it for one out. So his take on it will be a one Notes. My take on it was published in Gay City News, and uh, I received an email communication from the PR person for the defendant, the hospital. In this case, I'm going to talk about saying you've got it all wrong. You've got it all wrong. We're not a public hospital. We're a private hospital. Blah blah blah. So you'll see, this is this is kind of interesting. This guy Jesse Hammonds is a transgender man, and he was scheduled by his doctor for gender transition surgery at the Saint Joseph Medical Center of the University of Maryland Medical System Corporation. All right, Saint Joseph's was a Catholic hospital. It was owned. By a Catholic healthcare institution, not by a church. And it was sold to the University of Maryland Medical System. And the contract of sale required that they operate it as virtually a Catholic hospital, even though it was being owned by the University of Maryland Medical System Corporation. Uh, and they said, you have to comply with all the Catholic uh, bishops rules about Catholic health institutions, which says they don't do gender transition. So it seems that the medical director of the hospital got wind of the fact that one of the doctors who had admitting rights had scheduled this uh, operation and said, you can't do that operation here for a Catholic hospital he said i thought you were part of the university of maryland no we're a catholic hospital so uh, they they like the day before the surgery jesse hammonds was notified that your operation isn't going forward tomorrow and he eventually got it somewhere else but there was obviously quite a delay had had to uh, go through the whole prep procedure in another hospital first find one in the area that was willing to do it uh but he sued uh, claiming a violation of his rights under equal protection and uh, under uh, the Affordable Care Act. And they said, well, you can't, you can't sue us uh, under the Constitution because we're a private institution. Uh, we're not bound by equal protection. And he said, I thought you're at the University of Maryland. And the interesting thing is the, they, they tried to get it dismissed on grounds of governmental immunity. <laughs> and Judge Chazenow, uh, Deborah Chazenow of the U.S. District Court, senior U.S. District Judge in Maryland, uh, had granted their motion to dismiss the constitutional claim on the grounds that uh, they had uh, immunity. Um but it seems it seems that they claim they're a private institution and and uh they part of their defense against the uh, affordable care act thing is they said they're a private catholic institution and the affordable care act has a carve out for our religious hospitals you know uh, and and we're entitled to that and and uh, the judge said no Well, you're part of the university of maryland well they claim they're not part of the university of maryland and the reason they claim that is they say the University of Maryland Medical System Corporation is a private corporation, not a governmental corporation, that they're not affiliated with the University of Maryland as such. They probably have an agreement where medical students from the University of Maryland Medical School uh, can be interns and in residents at the and do some of their uh, medical education at St. Joseph Hospital. So, uh, but, uh, but they said that this, this is a separate corporation, separately incorporated separate board, and they have, uh, the St. Joseph, which they acquired and they agreed by contract to run it as a religious hospital. Uh, but Judge Chasenar ruled in favor of Hammonds. And this case is definitely going to be appealed. I mean, uh, they, they, they say that the judge got wrong, uh, the characterization of the defendant and, uh. Maybe they'll even be cross appeals.
0: I mean, it seems like that's a simple factual question to determine. I mean, maybe it's a a mixed question of fact and law, perhaps. But
1: well, it's also a question, and this isn't settled yet at the Supreme Court level, as whether under under the Affordable Care Act's uh, non-discrimination provision, which is incorporates by reference Title IX, uh, you know, once again, the question of whether Title IX covers transgender issues. Uh, does the Affordable Care Act require hospitals that are subject to it uh, to perform gender transition surgery? And uh, the, this is a, a hotly debated issue. You know, the, the issue of what Title IX means in this context, uh, and uh, there is a carve-out under Title IX for religious educational institutions. And there is a back and forth a debate over whether that carve-out also applies to hospitals or not. Uh, And uh, this was uh, an issue as to which the Trump and Biden administrations disagree. The Trump administration said the carve out applies to the Affordable Care Act and uh, the Biden administration says it doesn't. So this is a hot issue and uh, it's it's popping up in various different places. And I got a feeling that uh, the meaning of Title IX, one way or the other, is going to get up to the Supreme Court. And we'll find out whether the reasoning of the Bostock decision translates, and the degree to which Title IX, uh, with all of its particular twists and turns and peculiarities, applies in the Affordable Care Act context. All right. So, of note. <laughs>
0: yes, very interesting. Um, thank you, Art. It's been a, a thrill to be back, uh, being part of the podcast. Uh, thank you to our listeners who, uh, I hope, um, uh, remember me and remember me fondly and have enjoyed this, this episode as well. And, um, we'll, uh, we'll be back next month for another, uh, for another episode. So thank you very much.